You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The gospel of deregulation, meanwhile, had become such an irresistible ideological juggernaut that no amount of real-world failure could call it into question. Under the guidance of this doctrine, our leaders removed certain derivatives from regulatory oversight. They watered down requirements that banks balance their risk with safe assets. They exempted credit default swaps from regulation as insurance products. They dialed back the Federal Reserve's regulatory powers, and they struck down a rule that required hedge fund advisors to register with the SEC. All of these examples come from the first few chapters of a single investigative report. Further illustrations of the rollback of the regulatory state could be piled up by the hundreds. Meanwhile, anyone who knew anything about markets genuflected before the great God bonus, the pay-for-performance doctrine that was being triumphantly extended to every aspect of enterprise. Lavish incentives, the theory went, would coax superhuman labors from management and bring fantastic wealth to shareholders. In reality, as we now know, what bonuses inspired were superhuman efforts to game the system, to collect those rewards regardless of what the gaming did to stockholders, customers, or even the long-term health of the company. Preach it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's funny that you choose that passage, Rick. Uh, it seems because it's it's kind of technocratic. It's kind of it's the details, you mm-hmm. know, it's the details. But that's you're a details guy. Yeah, yeah. I'm oh, sorry, I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't talking to the microphone. No, that's good. that's okay. Uh, Thomas Frank is the author of The Conquest of Cool, One Market Under God, What's the Matter with Kansas, and The Wrecking Crew, How Conservatives Rule. He's a founding editor of The Baffler and a contributing editor to Harper's and a regular columnist in The Wall Street Journal. His new book is Pity the Billionaire, The Hard Time Swindle, and the Unlikely Comeback of the Right. Thank you for joining me, Thomas. It's my pleasure, Rick. As always, <laughs> it's a funny old world, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it, you can say that again. It's it, getting stranger by the day. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, I don't know about you, but I've been I've been having a a high old time watching the various Republican debates and victory speeches in the primary states as they go along, and it's uh, I could write another book, Rick. You know, it's so interesting because a lot of the things that you talk about in this book are being echoed by the candidates right now. Yes, and it's it's yes. shocking. <laughs> it is. It's it's sometimes mysterious, and I and I think, wait, did I write that? Did I script those lines? Uh, you know, I'm watching Newt uh, Newt Gingrich. They're running this TV commercial, in, or they were running it in South Carolina. I assume they're running it in Florida now, attacking Mitt Romney from a position that's way off to the left, attacking Mitt Romney for his his days as a venture capitalist when he would buy out these, you know, manufacturing uh, enterprises in the Midwest and, and fire everybody and move, you know, move it to <laughs> move it to overseas and this kind of thing. And it's like, I mean, it's like an old school liberal critique that liberals aren't using anymore. And so and so Newt Gingrich feels free to do it, you know, to, to just to pick it up. No, hell, nobody else is using it. Why not? But it's right out of pity the billionaire. He's um he has swiped a leftist critique of capitalism and made it his own. 
It's amazing. It, it really is, too. And we're also seeing, I know uh, Newt was talking in terror, trembling with terror at the powers of Obama's transformative government, that yes, he was going to yes, transform right. the nation. That's right. It's all, <laughs> that's all based on this one thing that Obama said on the campaign trail in 2008. What was it? God, I can't even remember it now. But when I used to watch Glenn Beck all the time, Glenn Beck would replay that clip of Obama saying this literally every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? To, we're going to transform America. Fundamentally, fundamentally transform America, right? <laughs> and they would play this every day. Every day, Glenn Beck would play this, and uh, you know, and this was supposed to be this like, this was the clue to what Obama was doing, and it was a horrible thing. It was so frightening, so terrifying. Um, yeah, but he said it once. <laughs> it was like something out of a monster movie. That's right. But I didn't know that uh, that Gingrich is, is referencing that now as well. Because yeah, yeah. what he's doing there is that's the he's calling out to the Glenn Beck fans. That's yeah. a, a, a Glenn Beck hates Newt Gingrich. You know about this, right? No, I didn't. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's I a would big, big be... spat between these two. They do not get along. Oh, but, really? Yes. But uh, that's funny that, that, that Gingrich is sort of going going around the, uh, you know, going around the media, as it were, going around the anchorman, as it were. Well, uh, these guys are nothing if not chameleonic. Yeah, and they're and they're uh, they're extremely clever. They play the game well. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, I think Newt Gingrich is a you know he's a this is a narcissistic man. He's a you know he's he's, <laughs> but he's I think with some reason you know I used to I used to sort of laugh at his ideas and his books and I would read them and and they were so farcical and you know the ideas were so ridiculous and his. Vision of I've read his novels too. Have you ever read Newt Gingrich's? You should have him on your show. No, yeah, I, I, his history novels. Yeah, his alternate history. <laughs> yes, they're they're a lot of fun, you know. But I I would read these and sort of you know chuckle at Newt Gingrich. And today, you know, I'm watching him just give Mitt Romney this pounding, you know, and it's it's actually you know some perverse side of me is kind of rooting for him. Although I like Mitt Romney too in a in a perverse way, but. Um, yeah, you know, I won't ever vote for either one of them, but it's it's a lot of fun to watch. And and Newt is very clever. You have to give him give him props when they're doing these debates. And Mitt comes after after him with you know attack after attack after attack, and Newt parries. You know, <laughs> and Newt has some counter counter attack. Always has some counter attack lined up. It, it is it is it is a hoot to watch that guy. Well, it's uh, appropriate that his novels are alternate history, since uh, the whole <laughs> yes, <laughs> the yes. whole thrust of your book is how the right has essentially written an alternate history of the present. That's right, an alter- exactly. Well, Ayn Rand, this is uh, the, the Atlas Shrugged is an alternate history, in my mm-hmm. view. Sure, it's, not, it's never marketed that way, and I, as far as I can tell, no other literary critic has ever. Um, tried to understand it that way. Mm-hmm. But and then Glenn Beck is a is a is a master of alternate history. Oh this sure. is what he does. This is what he deals in is this kind of uh, fringe version of history which he has in his one man show, you know, he was only on Fox News for what, two years. His brief moment as a you know of shooting star across the American firmament, right? And in that brief moment, he managed to transform the sort of ideas that you had on the Bircher right, you know, sort of very fringe ideas into the common sense of the millions to the point where today if you go on the Internet and search for any do a a search, a Google search for any aspect of the New Deal of the 1930s, um, way before you come across, say, you know, one of your standard histories of that period, you'll find the Glenn Beck take on it, or the Amity Schley's take on take on, or, or the extreme right take on that on that period. But uh, 
do you, I'm sorry, I talk too much. No, I talk to Amity Schlaes myself. Oh, yeah? Was that a fun interview? I bet it she's was, an interesting person. She I was very interesting. I mean, I, I enjoyed talking to her. And I and when you talk to her, she, she makes, you know, a, a, a certain amount of sense. And though, although I find myself straying into kind of Alice in Wonderland territory, which is, <laughs> yes, I think, yes, a lot yes. of what your book is about. Well, she did too. her research. Her yeah. research is, is very excellent. Mm-hmm. What's what's funny, I mean, we should let your listeners know she's she wrote an uh, alternate history of the 1930s, or a, a revisionist <laughs> history of the 1930s, not alternate. But uh, but the idea of, of her of her history, the central idea is that the New Deal was a failure and that the, the, there was this road not taken in the 1930s. 1930s, and that was the road of, of doing nothing, of just letting the economy crash, which is probably what we should have done. And uh, and she's one of the, the people that gave me my title, Pity the Billionaire, because the great hero of her book is Andrew Mellon. Andrew Mellon, the richest, yes, One exactly. of the richest men, the third richest <laughs> man in America at the time, and the Secretary of Treasury of the Treasury under Herbert Hoover and Calvin Coolidge. And um, she dwells endlessly in the book on how, um, how mean people were to him. <laughs> <laughs> in the Depression. <laughs> Pity the billionaire, Rick. <laughs> Poor Andrew Mellon. You know, it's so it's so sad what happened to him. My heart is crying. But, yes. But she's in that sense has a lot in common with um uh with Ayn Rand, mm-hmm. okay, who's 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 uh whose book Atlas Shrugged is the great Bible of the right wing moment that we're in right now. I mean the thing rocketed up in early twenty oh nine, rocketed up to I think number one on Amazon. All these pundits were writing about it, like, why is this book relevant to us today? Fascinating moment. The book was written in 1957. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I go down this road? No, no, because we had kind of talked about this because we, Have talked, we talked about this before. Well, not not about Ayn Rand, but we talked about the strike of oh yes, uh, of, the, uh, of course uh, of the yeah, job was, job of the job creators, creators. the yes. job creators strike. Yes, yeah. and that's the great theme of uh-huh. Atlas Shrugged. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, and I, I'm sorry to say, I didn't I didn't figure all of this out till I was finished with Pity the Billionaire. But uh, what I did figure out when I was writing Pity the Billionaire is, mm-hmm. okay, and let me just take a step back here. Sure. You know that Atlas Shrugged is a favorite novel for people in high school and college. This is what this is the, the sort of the, the traditionally who reads that book and who thinks it's a great work of literature. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was that age, uh, you know, when I was a sort of target age for Ayn Rand, I never read it. I was reading other things at the time. I was, you know, Hemingway and Fitzgerald. Those are my heroes. They still are today. So I missed that. I did not go through that Ayn Rand phase. And um, so when Atlas Shrugged became this 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 huge bestseller and when I knew I was going to write Pity the Billionaire and I knew I had to read uh, Atlas Shrugged if I wanted to understand the present moment. And so I went out and read it. And I, and I, and I came to it with fresh eyes because I'd never read it before. Mm-hmm. I, I hadn't even read excerpts from it. I didn't even know what it was about. Uh, and so reading it, it, it dawned on me fairly quickly. The, the book is written in 1957, but it's not a book, book of 1957. Uh, for example, there is no television in mm-hmm. Atlas Shrugged. I mean, they mention it. It's been invented. They mention it. But there's no nobody ever watches TV. And you think of 1957, people were you know, yeah. watching TV like in this, you know, in this uh, hypnotic way. You know, they were hypnotized by it. It was the great. It, it never happens mm-hmm. in Atlas Shrugged. You don't have um, jet planes. There's no no reference to jet engines in there or, or ICBMs or any mm-hmm. of the any of the things that you had in the world of 1957. Are, are, it's weirdly it's a novel that that is that is not of 1957. And it's so not the, really. It's a fantasy. In it's a, a fantasy, sense. but it's also it does ha, it does have have trains. Mm-hmm. It has steel mills. And so I'm reading this and I'm like, 
by God, this is obviously a book about the 1930s. Mm-hmm. It just dawned on me as I was the first line, the first page of Atlas Shrugged is a, a bum, as she puts it, asking someone for a dime. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't quote the bum. She doesn't say what he says. But he, he's clearly said, brother, can, can you, you spare, spare a dime? dime? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, as you go through the book and there's all these, you know, uh, uh, trains. One of there's two main characters in the book, industrialists. One of them is the head of a railroad. The other is the head of a steel mill. And the head of the, the railroad is supposed to be this really, uh, you know, really sexy frontier of American commerce. And it's it's and it's 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 exactly what people thought of railroads in the 1930s. This is the era of the streamliners. They were building the first diesel engines. They were doing these speed records with trains, driving them back and forth from Denver to Chicago. And that's and there's that that great. It's one of the actually passages of Atlas Shrugged that I really liked, where the head of the railroad, her name, her, her name is, is is Dagny. I don't know if you're supposed to pronounce it in the French pronunciation, Dagny. I don't know. I, I've never <laughs> said it out loud before. But she drives this train at this great rate of speed, you know, to somewhere in Colorado, and it's one of the high points in the book. And it's like right out of the 1930s. It's a total period piece. Well, you know, that makes perfect sense why it's resonating now because yeah. it, we're it's in a, our second depression. It's an alternate period. history of the Great Depression. Sure, sure. That's what I finally figured out. It uh-huh. is the great the, the Atlas Shrugged is the Great Depression as conservatives and free market believers have always thought the Great Depression should have happened. This is the real reason that you had this is because this is the Amy Schley's version. Amity Schley's, Amy Schley's, yes. Because you are government is uh, has enacted all these insane regulations, and Rand is very good about spelling out these. I mean, government is doing crazy things, and it's driving people. You know, businessmen are like, forget it. I'm not going to. If that's the rules, then I'm I'm giving up my business. I'd rather give up my business and comply with these crazy rules. And that's how that that's how conservatives have always believed hard times take place is government interference causes hard times, not government interference mitigates hard times. It's the other way around. And um, that's what happens in Atlas Shrugged. And then there's all these sort of smaller uh, parallels with the 30s. And one of them is, you know, the, the main theme of the book is is capital as a capital strike. Businessmen mm-hmm. go on strike. The tycoons of America say, <laughs> "The hell with this. We're walking," you know. And it's and I and I, I you pick up on that right away. Ayn Rand, when she was writing it, she called it her strike novel. It's a novel about a strike, which is the classic '30s theme. Mm-hmm. You know, it, that's the great theme of proletarian literature. This is proletarian literature, only with all the sort of valences flipped. So the real producers, <laughs> it, it is, yeah. no, it totally is. All the the producer class is the um, the tycoons, uh-huh. the financiers, the the ones who own the big the billionaires. Sure. That's the producers of America. Everybody else are parasites. So it, it takes that old '30s script and stands it on its head. And that's what happened. I mean, there was a millionaires' club in the '30s yes. that tried to do that unsuccessfully. Yes, right. yes. they uh, what were they called? The American Liberty League. Yeah. And they were like Roosevelt is his unconstitutional tyrant, you know. And they they said all the same things about Roosevelt that they're saying about Obama today. I mean, much meaner things. Uh, they never, you know, dreamed up the idea that he was born in Kenya or anything like that, like that. But they, you know, they came up with all the other stuff. You know, the same things that they're saying about about Obama today. But the, the, in '37, the economy. Took a, a, the economy was recovering very nicely in the first few years of the Roosevelt administration, and then in '37 it took this nosedive, and um, uh, uh, gross national product stopped growing, and in '38 the economy went back into recession. And the Roosevelt uh, Roosevelt's advisors 
uh, blamed this on what they called a capital strike. They said the reason this is happening is because businessmen are are fighting us. They don't like the they don't like the Roosevelt reforms, and they're fighting us by you know withholding productivity and and withholding investment. And it's a capital strike that we're facing. And historians generally downplay this this part this chapter of the New Deal because they think that's a conspiracy theory that that was there's no way that was the case. And hmm. here's what's funny. It, Atlas Shrugged, that's what it's about. It's about a capital strike. It's like, yeah, that is what happened in the 30s. And that's what Amity Schles has said also. Uh-huh. That is what happened in the 30s. That's why you had a depression. It was a capital strike. Right now, we're in the midst of our own little uh, depression. And so talk a little— Thankfully, a much smaller version. A much smaller version. It's, yeah. Well, of course— um, we're, there, we're not jumping out the windows and we're not wearing barrels yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, I mean, uh, you know. Good time to invest in barrels. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But you and I are, in, you and I are in, in the media. You know, I used to be in newspapering, you mm-hmm. know, journalism. You know, oh, my God. It's like it's like not only is the economy collapsing, the industry is collapsing as well. So we all have our stories that we can tell. But let's not go there right now. Uh, your your book uh, begins with a, uh, a kind of an introduction where you talk about what we would have expected in the financial crisis of 2008 would have brought and based on what happened in the depression yeah people were pissed off people yeah. were upset that business the businesses and the, the industries and all those tycoons that we've been talking about they Had they didn't dr- driven the economy off a cliff sure. And in the in the in the in the late twenty in the uh, what twenty nine you know after the twenty nine crash, there was a whole like popular literature of you know of 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 making fun of the idols of the of the nineteen twenties the great businessman heroes of you know making fun of these guys and they and and it just seemed natural to assume in twenty oh eight and twenty oh nine that that was going to happen again. The reason and that you'd see a political turn to the left. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, pundits across the board were predicting this. Uh, conservatives as well as liberals, everybody thought this was going to happen, and they they also thought that the Republican Party had pushed too far with George W. Bush. They had uh, deregulated too much. They had grown ideologically too extreme, and they had to move back to the center. And the, this is the the part of the story that is that 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 really uh, that really gets me. They did the opposite. You know, they became. They they became more concentrated ideologically. They purged moderates, uh, and they succeeded. This was a successful strategy. This is a strategy that led them to a great victory in 2010, doing exactly the opposite of what every political scientist in this country expected them to do and advised them to do. They did the opposite, and it worked. And including their, you know, some of the more reasonable people in their in their ranks, uh, David Frum. Thought they were. Over he's an the example. He's an example of a guy who got purged. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a guy. I actually, you know, I know David from, and uh, he worked in the Bush administration, and then um, he wrote, you know, a great story in Newsweek. This was early in 2009 uh, about how this sort of this um, uh, this the the extremes of the the extreme end of the Republican Party had to had to silence itself, and they, the party had to move back to the middle. And what happened to him? You know, he got tossed out of whatever think tank it was that he was working at. He had to go out on his own. And he's actually he's done all right on his own. But but, yeah, he's one of the examples of, I mean, that poor guy, you know. (laughs) Now, uh, you talk about um, the what you call the end times. And I think that we've seen a lot of that um, uh, now that the way that the current crisis is 
portrayed. They really are playing off, you know, the threat of imminent apocalypse. I think there's a lot of uh, end times talk that kind of uh, undercurrent that feeds this uh this swing to the right and the success of that swing yeah. to the right. You hear this talk all the time. It comes in two varieties. One is the notion that doom is right around the corner uh, and it's coming to, to ruin our way of life. And this is really, this is the Glenn Beck, um, this is Glenn Beck's sort of patented way of when his TV show was on the air. Every day he had a new fear for you. And it was, I mean, it was like, it was, it was, it was, it was, that was his calling card. That's what mm -hmm. he did. It's like, here comes disaster. I thought of a new way that disaster's coming, you know, and here it comes. And, uh, he he used to joke. Uh, he called his his uh, the studio where he did his show the Doom Room, you know. <laughs> and there's but then there's this other way, uh, which is this other understanding of end times, uh, where it's what we need. And conservatives say this as well. This is Rand Paul uh, has this term the Judgment Day. Mm -hmm. You know, the Day of Judgment is here. And what they mean, and his dad, Ron Paul, uh, uses very similar language. That this is what we need. We need a kind of end times. We need a huge sorting out of the kind of thing that Amity Schley said we should have had in the 1930s. We need to let the failures fail, you know, let the economy collapse mm -hmm. and let enterprising people pick up, as Andrew Mellon used to said, you know, told Herbert Hoover we should he should do in the 1930s. Let enterprising people pick up the wrecks and, you know, uh, let the chips fall where they may. Let the whole damn thing collapse. And, you know, what's really interesting is these are guys that are alternately talking about the end of the world and trying to deliver the end of the world. And they get into office in 2010 and they what do they do? You know, what's the first thing they do? The de this debt ceiling showdown where they by God, they almost did it. They almost wrecked the dollar. You know, they almost made the U.S. government default. That's and they, that that would be, by the way, economic end times. And they came very close. Your listeners can't see this, but I'm holding my fingers really close to one another. They came that close to uh, delivering the end times that they fantasize about. It was a scary moment. It was. And, you know, what's interesting, and you bring this up, too, is that they talk about there's uh, on for one thing, what you say is. You talked about they've wanted they've purged the Republican Party the way you describe it. They want to purge everybody. <laughs> yeah. That's that. Yeah. It's well, not... it's you know it's that's that's the kind of mood that we're in, and I use that word purge deliberately. Mm -hmm. um, and I know people associate it with the Communist uh, Party, you know, which was forever. I'm speaking of the American Communist Party, which was forever throwing people out that weren't, you know, ideologically pure. Hell, maybe they're still doing it to this day. <laughs> I don't know. But I make a bunch of comparisons in the book between the, the modern day conservative movement and the Communist Party of mm -hmm. old. And I mean, one of the, the not the least of them is their, you know, the Ayn Rand thing. Ayn Rand, obviously not a communist, an anti a strident anti-communist, hated communism but was raised in the Soviet Union and emigrated to America and proceeded to build a theoretical system that she thought was like it was a, a match for Marxism. That was her whole idea was to build a philosophical system that could kick Marxism's ass. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she did it. She did it, you know. And uh, you have to admire that sort of, you know, philosophical entre, you know, entrepreneurship, you know. But uh, but the right really has they have they've em embraced a kind of utopian vision of capitalism that is every bit as utopian as the old Soviet, uh, you know, 
uh, Soviet utopianism or ideal, you know, you know, ideal. Well, the two things are 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 very easily confused: ideology and utopia. And I'm confusing them right now, but they they act in many ways uh, like the old Communist Party. One's just a mirror of the other, and in, in, in a lot of ways, uh, it's, lot of ve- ways. it's very curious. Yeah, and and sometimes this is deliberate. You mm-hmm. have uh, uh, you know some of the leaders of the conservative movement. Today, who have who deliberately uh, read old communist books and uh, try to take lessons from them? Uh, I'm thinking of Dick Armey's group, Freedom Works, mm-hmm. in Washington D.C. They do this on purpose. Now, one of the things you talked about was that uh, in the book that one of the theories that the right likes to talk about is that the uh, hard times are brought about by liberals deliberately yes. to increase their ranks. And what's interesting is that it's actually the opposite, it seems like to me. I mean, the debt ceiling being a great example and just the entire yeah. two years of – the last two years of the Congress That's right. have been nothing but – This is – that we I associate that usually with Glenn Beck. Mm-hmm. And he's he's the one that, that came up with – or that, that described that theory in that way, you know, that went as far as to say that hard times are deliberately ginned up by liberals in order to – you know, to make people become liberals, to, to reproduce <laughs> liberalism. And uh, but you also see it with. Um, well, let's take a step back here. When we think back to the 1930s, we think about it as a terrible time, mm-hmm. a horrible era because people were unemployed. There was, you know, starvation in America. People had to go to barter because uh, there was deflation. Uh, you know, you think of the the poor um, Okies, you know, the migrant farmers uh, abandoning their farms in the Midwest and moving to California. All the sort of human wretchedness of the 1930s. Terrible, terrible time. There are other people that think of the 30s as a terrible, terrible time for completely different reasons. And those reasons are because that's when they got regulated. <laughs> that's when the, the workers in their factory formed a, a union. That's when Franklin Roosevelt was president. He raised their taxes. That's so, when the New Deal was created. That's right. And so for them, it's a horrible time because of the politics of it. And so they, when 2008 happened in this financial crisis and the collapse, that you, people who think of the 30s in those terms were immediately fearful that that's what was going to happen, that the left was going to suddenly rebuild itself. They were going to be back. They were going to have another Roosevelt. They were going to have more regulation. Unions were going to start sweeping the country. All of these terrible things that happened in the 30s were going to happen again. And that was, by and large, that was the fear on the right. Not that there would be bread lines or not that they would lose their jobs, but that it would be the comeback of big government. Now, uh, you talk about uh, the the sequel to 1929, the events leading up to to this, and some of your descriptions are kind of mind boggling in terms of when you talk about Trader Monthly magazine <laughs> yes. and and the days. And I love this this uh, there's a phrase you use in here uh, called desupervision. Yes, we've heard a lot about deregulation, but I think desupervision was almost more uh, fundamental, more dangerous. And, yeah, because it couldn't desupervision wasn't something you could track in the laws. It's just somebody not looking, paying right. attention. It's just not enforcing the law. The sure. laws are still on the books; they just aren't enforced. Uh-huh. And this is an idea that I got from. I mean, I wrote about it in the Wrecking Crew, but I mm-hmm. didn't have a word for it at the time. I didn't know there was a term for it, uh-huh. and so I used terms like a regulatory capture to describe it. But what it means is you've got when you basically turn regulatory agencies over to people that aren't interested in the mission and they stop enforcing the law or when you um, you totally defund the regulatory agency which happened to like the Securities and Exchange Commission they weren't totally defunded but they were uh, largely defunded they weren't able to really able to um, 
to do anything with the people they were supposed to be uh, overseeing and mm-hmm. the laws they were supposed to be enforcing. And uh, a, a friend of mine, uh, Bill Black, who's a professor at the University of Missouri at Kansas City, is he is probably the nation's leading authority on the history of regulation and regulatory enforcement. Mm-hmm. The man has this uh, extraordinary uh, body of knowledge about how regulations are enforced, and he's the one that ha- that coined this term "desupervision" to describe what happened. And he's he's exactly right that basically you had laws against all of these things and they weren't enforced and they were sometimes they were the the process of 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 not enforcing them was was you could lay a finger on it you could say ah this happened this happened then mm-hmm. there's a very famous example lots of states had laws against predatory lending which by the way had they been enforced would have helped to stop you know the no doc loans and some of the crazy stuff that was going on during the housing bubble and the bush administration stepped in in 2003 what was this there was a name for it for what they did and i've forgotten what the name is now but they uh, they essentially usurped the role of the states and they said no from now on this is a federal issue states can't enforce can't have predatory lending laws anymore now this is a federal issue and we're not going to do anything about it, predatory lending <laughs> yeah. and they actually did that and that was a sort of classic case of of desupervision they just let let it let it run wild tell us a little bit about uh trader monthly magazine all right <laughs> this was uh okay i came across that when i was i was a columnist for the wall street journal and um one of my friends in the magazine industry this is the, the the recession had had been going on for about a year this is uh, late 2008 early 2009 and magazines were starting to die. And this often happens in, in hard times. In the 30s, I think it was Vanity Fair died in the early 30s. They brought it back later on. But mm-hmm. Vanity Fair, and it was, it was a symbol for the era because Vanity Fair had been this um, magazine for rich people. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it failed in the 30s, okay? <laughs> and so um, I was looking, of course, I was looking for similar examples. And a friend of mine in the magazine industry sent me a list of all the magazines that had failed in the early part of 2009. And it was like yachting, or, you know, some yachting magazine. <laughs> and, I, and I was, I, you know, that was funny. But the one that caught my eye was Trader Monthly. And and I was like, what on earth is that? And I went down to a, a, a bookstore that still had uh, some back issues. I got those. And then I was able to, it, was, it took some doing, but I was able to get all their back issues eventually. And, uh, and I wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal, and I expanded it for, for Pity the Billionaire. But it was a magazine uh, that was worshipped this figure of the Wall Street trader. And not necessarily Wall Street. He could, oh, excuse me, microphone. Sorry about that. This, a trader could be at any of the big exchanges. He could be at the you know, Chicago Board of Trade. He could be at the Kansas City, uh, Kansas City Board of Trade trading you know, agricultural futures and that kind of thing. But the idea was not that what a trader did was productive or useful or helpful for society. It was the trader's lifestyle. These guys made tons of money in that era without basically without doing any work. I mean, their their job is to go down to an exchange and buy, you know, sell, sell high and buy low. You know, that's what they do. <laughs> and they and they, and it and it worshiped this kind of figure. And it imagined him always as this kind of truculent, bullying he-man. You know, that's who a trader was. And that was supposed to be really cool. And you were that was you know, that was who you wanted to be. And then even better, though, were the things that a trader could buy. You know, and they were always talking about the bonuses. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they had a special bonus issue every year when your Wall Street bonuses <laughs> came, you know, and what were you going to spend your bonus on? And they had these like, you know, uh, they, would, they would give you, you know, guidance for how to spend your bonus. You had these super expensive bottles of scotch and you could get them engraved. 
You know, like great like bottles. $20,000 bottle of scotch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, things like that. And these watches. I mean, I, you can spend a lot of money on a watch. Believe me, Rick Kleffel. Uh, they're, they're, they're always this transparent kind of watch. So you can see the mechanical workings of the watch mm-hmm. when you look at it. And the cars. Of course, the cars are, you know. And they they had a, a they had a columnist that wrote about airplanes. What airplane you should buy. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that. An airplane, you know, an airplane columnist. Anyhow, it was, but this magazine went out of business, and so I, I, I it was, it was a symbol of the moment, mm-hmm. you know. But it was also a symbol of that preceding decade. It was, in fact, it's, it's possibly the best symbol that I know of. There is no, I mean, it was just this completely crass, in-your-face celebration of the Wall Street lifestyle. Now, the I think the apotheosis of this is a gentleman who had his moment and it still rains and I watched it this as much as I could take this morning Mr. Rick Santelli <laughs> yes I mean this guy he was is the, the 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 hero of the trader he's and this is this is what's funny is you you're coming out of this culture that worshiped the trader in the mm-hmm. in the in the in the last decade and you'd think that you know trader monthly goes down you'd think the trader's day is done and what happens in 2009, who gets out there and gives the great call for the populist movement to rise up and oppose, you know, the uh, the the you know, to break to to take a hammer to orthodoxy? It's Rick Santelli, who's a a, a news announcer, or a, 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 a you know, a, a, what would you say, a TV personality for CNBC, the stock market channel, mm-hmm. and he's speaking from the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade where he's surrounded by a floor full of angry traders, you know, guys trading derivatives or whatever, futures or something like that. And there he is denouncing the bailouts, but he's specifically denouncing the possibility. He's really mad and he's screaming about the possibility that losers, as he put them, might get off the hook with their mortgages. People that bought too much house might get off the hook. And the traders are yelling with approval. They think this is the greatest thing in the world. And he calls for what he calls, he says, a Chicago Tea Party uh, to protest the Obama administration. And this is where the Tea Party movement gets its start, literally from the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade, from the mouths of traders. <laughs> You know, the guys in Trader Monthly, that's who's doing it. And this is their movement. The Tea Party movement is their movement. They, they never went away. They just shifted gears and they just became populists instead of, you know, these sort of braying louts that they wanted to be, uh, you know, in, in the previous decade. You know, the way to something that's really important in terms of understanding movements and moments and also stomping them out, mercilessly putting stakes through their heart until they die, 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 (laughs) is by naming them. And you come up with a name for something that I think is really important and key to this book, muddlement. Yes. And that's exactly what I think a lot the at the center of this book is this muddlement. So yes. tell There's us always this confusion. Yes. And it, and it ha- and I've been on a book tour now for 3 weeks and every time I do a radio show and we take calls the muddlement <laughs> the muddlement starts to rise. And people are like, "Well, didn't government cause the financial crisis in some way?" I'm like, "No, no they didn't." Well, I mean, well didn't they you know encourage the housing market over the years? Well, yeah, they did do that. Well, then, therefore, didn't they have a hand in it? Didn't government bail out the banks? Yes, they did. Well, then isn't government responsible and isn't isn't doing away with government altogether the right answer and letting those traders just run everything by themselves? If we just let the market speak, if we could just, you know, let the market alone. 
The market is a perfect ecology. Yes, a perfect little ecosystem. <laughs> perfect. What was the, the, the head of the New York Stock Exchange in the 30s said that the New York Stock Exchange was a perfect institution. And, and that's like that is the free market ideology. And if, if we would just get government out of the picture and let the market have its way, we would never have problems like this. We wouldn't have cycles of boom and bust. We wouldn't have uh, housing bubbles. But you think of the, the Glenn Beck program where he takes fears that are very widespread. And I think fears that are totally rational, fears, economic fears. Mm-hmm. We're in very hard times. The economy is falling apart before our eyes. And he takes that fear and through the magic of muddlement, turns it into something else. This fear that communists are everywhere. You know, the communists are the White House. The that, enemy within. That, yes, that, that, the, that the dollar is about, that we're in a Weimar Germany similar situation and the, do, the dollar is about to experience hyperinflation. And, you know, you got to buy gold, you know, because that's the only, uh, you know, the end is near, you know. But we're afraid of everything except for the thing itself. You know, the thing that actually happened to us, you know, we're afraid of everything else. Uh, you know, the Kenyan president bring his alien ideology, you know, <laughs> all of these crazy fears that are swirling around out there. And that's the muddlement. And well, you know what was shocking? I never saw this uh cover that there was you report that there was a Newsweek cover that said we're all socialists now. This is Newsweek. This is huge on the right. Huge. This is it's that's shockingly terrifying. Yes, it is. <laughs> and it, it and it scared people. And you go to Tea Party rallies and people will blow this this cover up and paste it on a placard and wave it in the air. You know, this is to them this was this was when the balloon went up. So this is the thing you're afraid of. We are we're as Newsweek said, we are all socialists now. And they're like, what? When did that happen? We don't have a socialist party. I never voted for a socialist. And, and they're obvious. And he, this is very early. This is in February of 09. So Obama has just been put in as president. The natural assumption, you look at that cover, they're talking about Obama. And this is Newsweek. This is one of the great organs of liberal media saying this. And, they, and the right looks at it as a kind of confession. The socialists have taken over. Now, what Newsweek was actually doing was they were trying to make a clever comment about the bank bailouts, that the bank bailouts were the act of a socialist. Now, this is, of course, not true. Ronald Reagan bailed out banks. Herbert, right. Hoover, Herbert Hoover bailed out banks. Uh, the head of Citibank was at one time, when I wrote, you remember One Market Under God? He was one of the characters in One Market Under God. Is this guy called Walter Riston. As pure a believer in markets as you can find, he accepted bailouts. This is like bailouts are nothing new. And they're not the act of a socialist. They're not the act of a communist. This is the act of a government that is essentially captured by Wall Street. You know, that's what they are. So in some ways, it's the opposite of socialism. And yet that's how Newsweek and I think it was a huge journalistic blunder on their part. But that's how Newsweek characterized it. And um, that totally stoked these fears. That's that's the act of muddlement right there to mm-hmm. say that the that the bailouts are, are are a socialist thing and that we're all socialists now. That's that's muddlement pure and simple. And um, and it was you know I, I think that Newsweek should you know they have they have a lot to answer for there. But uh, uh, that's one of the things that led to all this. There's no doubt about it. It's one of the that's one of the milestones. Well, you know, there's a certain. Uh... By the way, you're the first one to ask me about any of this stuff. Oh. I've been I've been doing radio <laughs> interviews for three weeks now since the book came out. You're the first one to raise what any of these subjects. Well, I, here's another one. I, I, I get the feeling you actually read the book, Rick. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll try not to do that next time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me raise something. You know, there's a a, an, a Buddhist aspect to all this, in that 
what we're doing, what we're being asked to do is embrace opposing notions. And that's one of the, I think, the core aspects of Buddhism. I mean, it's Buddhism put into a funhouse mirror and wearing devil horns. <laughs> <laughs> but you, because we're, you know, we're being asked to, and this is something that I couldn't even ever understand this. I would like see these things and I couldn't, I have to admit, I just couldn't grasp it. How on one hand, Obama had Wall Street friends and how, on the other hand, he was just this remorseless persecutor of Wall Street. Yes. And, and this is this the muddle, the yeah. muddlement. This happens all the time. It's really scary. And there's even a great you've mentioned you, an advertisement an advertisement where they do both sides of that coin within 30 seconds. So there's a, let me remember this. It was an ad for Rand Paul running uh-huh. for the U.S. Senate in Kentucky. And he said and it accuses Rand Paul's opponent of both. Uh, let me see. How does it go? It has to do with AIG. So he's both. Uh, uh, God, how does it go? Oh, first, it's he's he's a part. He wants to be a part of big government that's reaching out and taking over private companies. You know, this mm-hmm. grasping totalitarian monster, right? This grasp and the and the and the commercial shows this sort of uh, mechanical octopus grabbing <laughs> the AIG logo. And then a few seconds later, it criticizes the guy for taking money from AIG lobbyists. You know, he so he's both. Doing this horrible thing to AIG, and he's AIG's puppet at the same time. And this is this is a critique that you hear all the time from these guys. It's it's absolutely fascinating. This gets us closer to this idea of mimesis. It's where they're taking all the tools, all the language of the left, and turning it to the right. And yes. again, it's something you look at it. I I watch this stuff, and I just I can't understand it because. And I have to admit, you bring this up. I, I was one of the first people. I looked when I first saw the Tea Party. I'm thinking, are they good? Are they evil? Yeah. What I, is it? I, the exact same thing went through my head too, because I, I went to that first Tea Party rally and I was laughing at it because I, I recognized the people there. <laughs> I'm like, I know you guys. You're all in the Wrecking Crew. You're the Wrecking Crew with a new, you know, a new game. That's all you are. You know, I could see right through that. But there's a protester holding a sign that says, "Let the failures fail," and he's got the AIG logo on there, the Citibank logo, and I'm like, yeah. Well, you know, I would like to see that happen. I would like to see those guys go down. And, you know, you think about it for a couple of seconds and you realize, no, that's not a good idea, that you have to do something. You can't just let let everything fall apart. But even I, you know, the you know famous liberal Tom Frank, even I was completely sort of taken by that. And uh, and that's that they they do talk a good game. And they and 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 okay, you bring up mimesis. Mm-hmm. By the way, you know this this idea which is too highfalutin for the New York Times. Really? But yes, in the, the the review of my book they're like, you know, I had to look it up in a dictionary or something. Some, what is that? <laughs> you know, something like I don't know. The New York Times is not what it used to be. <laughs> I guess not. But uh, uh but they don't have dictionary on the, their what iPhone. The idea mean, what the idea means is in the in the, you know, in the animal kingdom where where animals well no it's verisimilitude it's trying to achieve through a work of art trying to achieve to to look like something else to remind you of something else and there's a there's a famous uh, in in the animal kingdom when an animal evolves over the millennia to look like another one so we're all familiar with with you know harmless bugs that look like bees you know and you're like oh it's a bee don't don't you know 
don't swat it. But of course, it's not a bee. It's a you know, it's a harmless fly, and you know, and the don't tread on me snake that you actually can tread on. <laughs> yes, don't worry that's about right. that one. There's, there's all kinds of, of mimesis rattlesnakes, ra- you know, fake rattlesnakes that animals that act, you know, snakes that are harmless but that act like rattlesnakes and mm-hmm. shake their tail in the dead leaves, you know, and try to fool predators into thinking that they're. This is this is common in in the animal kingdom. But what intrigues me is that the right is doing this with they're acting like a protest movement from the 1930s. They're acting like a 19 you know a, a left wing protest movement. And we've already quoted several really good choice examples of this, but uh, the Newt Gingrich TV commercial that he's running in <laughs> South Carolina and Florida, that sort of thing. But uh, there's they they read left wing books. They try to uh, have left wing style protests. They use left wing phrases um, across the board. They are trying to mimic a hard times protest movement. And I love the story about Michael Walsh as it starring Michael Walsh as David Cahane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Tell us this about is that a book. Uh, a book that came out a couple of years ago. I often get the feeling, Rick, that these you know these books make a big splash uh, in sales. And and then um, they're never reviewed. Mm-hmm. No one ever talks about them. So this is a book that came out a couple of years. It was called Rules for Radical Conservatives. The idea of the book is he's writing it in in a very curious voice. He's writing it in the voice of a Hollywood radical, a Hollywood leftist, a Hollywood liberal. And this Hollywood liberal is giving away all the secrets of how you know leftists, these sort of demonic leftists, have been so successful over the years, and how it is that Hollywood leftists now rule the world and you know reign with this iron fist. Uh, and he's giving all these secrets away to conservatives so that they can mimic what liberals do. And it's all imaginary, of course. He imagines liberals to be basically Stalinists mm-hmm. so that the right can then act like Stalinists. This gives the right permission to be completely iron-fisted. It's fascinating. It's like, you know, wheels within wheels, you know, make the second remove, the third remove, the fourth remove, and you get to where these guys are. And that's the muddle. And that's the mimesis. It's it's fascinating. And yet this they all, the you know, conservatives read this book very widely. It was never, as far as I can tell, it was not. You know, the New York Times did not review it. It never got any notice in in mainstream media. But I read it, <laughs> <laughs> and I actually went on my iPad and looked up the uh, the the Christmas clause, the liberal clause. Yes. Oh, yes. This That's is a great one. A this fascinating is... book. I mean, it's and it's got you know, it's interesting because the reviews in, in Amazon of it are on you know two completely different. There, are, you get a five star two five star reviews that have completely opposite. Views of the book. Wait, five star reviews that have yeah they they have there's a five star review that says this is a great book for educating your kids about the evils of Obama and how the socialism <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a five star review and then there's somebody else that says this is a great book because it shows just how completely insane these people are. <laughs> Yes. Well, yes. And, uh, and and I did read it and it, it, it is it is fascinating. And uh, uh, God, I, I'm sorry, I'm I'm it, I'm blanking on on the, the significance of the book in terms of the narrative. It is it is definitely a milestone in the muddlement. But it's funny because I think the reason what drew me to the book is that the guy who wrote it first came to prominence at one of these uh, town hall meetings where they were arguing about health care. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that guy was. Uh, and he got Hendrick. up. This is in, Van, uh, I think, Vancouver, Washington or near Vancouver, Washington. Uh-huh. And he got up and 
started yelling at his member of Congress, a Democrat. It was a Democratic congressman. He got up and started yelling at this guy. And he, uh, I went back and watched the original tape. And this is after the, the Democrat had been talking, I think, for two hours already or three hours, for a really long time. And, uh, and this guy yelled at him. And it, it, it was filmed on a sort of handheld uh, camcorder. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and, and immediately it went to Fox News and on YouTube. And it was all over the place. And this guy is yelling at his congressman and you know, basically accusing the congressman of, of, of having these sort of totalitarian desires or aims. And, um, and it's really powerful. If that's what you think about, well, it's always kind of fun to watch a guy yelling at his, at yeah, his congressman. Taking down you know? a congressman. Yeah, it's it's fun, you know, and and it it struck a nerve, and it became uh, it went viral, as they say, and this guy then this guy uh, who did it decided he would run for Congress. He would follow up his his success on YouTube by running for Congress as a Republican, and that didn't work out. He didn't win the primary, and. Um, but by the way, the the Republican who did win the primary is now the Congress is the member of Congress from that area. No, a very conservative. It's what's been happening all over America: a liberal member of Congress being replaced not by a moderate, but by someone way to the right. And um, so he ran for Congress and failed. And then he wrote this book, and I, and I sort of saw it as this a kind of parable for the. Um, the self-assertion that's behind a lot of the Tea Party movement stuff and the and the conservative movement these days is that everybody sees this as their ship coming in. Mm. It's their great opportunity in life. They're going to go out there and make a career out of this. You know, they get their moment on YouTube and then, by God, they're going to get rich from it somehow. Or they're going to become famous from it. They're going to run for Congress. They're going to sell copies. They're going to sell their snake flag. And there's all these people that have designed, um, what would you call it, proprietary... Tea Party flags. Oh yeah, you know flags of their own design that mm-hmm. they've trademarked and they're selling these. So you should, and this is going to be the flag of the movement. Damn it, go out and buy one of these. And uh, you know, and you see them at these rallies. These guys with their flags that they're very proud of that they've designed themselves. But this guy wrote a book and self-published this book about. If Obama was Santa Claus, if somehow liberals took over the North Pole and were, you know, Turns. doing doing all their liberalizing on Christmas, you know, it's a variation on the war on Christmas theme. All of us should get out there and buy Thomas Frank's book, Pity the Billionaire. I've been speaking with Thomas Frank. His new book is a Pity the Billionaire. You need spare no pity for Thomas Frank. <laughs> Thank you for joining me, Thomas. Rick, it's always a pleasure to do this. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.